Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights, the podcast for the CyberEd.io learning community. Our goal is to bring cybersecurity practitioners the latest and most relevant education and training to upskill and dive deeper into topics that matter in today's modern cybersecurity world. Good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the Managing Director at CyberEd.io. And with me today is Lonnie Price. He's the Vice President of Cyber and Information Warfare at Periton. They are one of the nation's leading national security companies headquartered in Reston, Virginia, and their focus is cyber, digital cloud operations and engineering. Lonnie's role is to lead Periton's corporate strategy for cyber and information warfare. He drives the development of advanced cyber solutions across Periton's diverse portfolio of full-spectrum cyber capabilities, both offensive and defensive ops and information ops, and has extensive experience in cyber and technical countermeasures and counterintelligence, counterterrorism, threat analysis, cyber investigations and forensics and emerging technologies. Prior to Periton, Lonnie served in senior roles in the U.S. State Department, including 17 years overseas in more than 100 countries managing security risks at U.S. embassies. So uh, welcome, Lonnie. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, thank you very much, Steve. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to be part of this conversation. Yeah, sure. Great. Why don't we dive right in? I wanted to start by asking you what you thought the impact of the uh, the war in Ukraine was having on uh, on the cybersecurity landscape, if any, and how you perceive that part of that war, that I, I can call it non-kinetic part of that war to be going. Well, I'll tell you, Steve, while it's, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian criminal invasion is um, egregious and has caused a lot of misery and destruction of lives and property. Uh, there are some technology lessons to be learned about what's what's happened over there, starting with the Viasat uh, hack on, on day one of the invasion, where the Viasat's modems were crippled by Russia's uh, acid rain malware, keeping tens of thousands of folks from accessing the internet via the, the satellite you know, infrastructure. The intention was to disrupt uh, you know, operations in the Ukrainian government and interrupt their decision making later on we saw the you know the synchronized cyber and kinetic attacks working together right the the cyber attack of the ukrainian you know state power company combined with the, the shelling uh the bombing of the nuclear power plant again the combination of, of cyber and kinetic disrupting operations disrupting decision making and you know quick response and and, and so forth but i tell you the Modernization is a positive, let's say, lesson and a positive outcome that we've seen from from the conflict. Right when when Western tech firms came in and and really really helped out the Ukrainian government, stay operational, stay resilient. They they helped them modernize and and move a lot of their information assets and their their infrastructure to the cloud at, at scale and and at, at speed. I mean, it was a, absolutely a you know a mod, technology modernization success story. It not only again gave the Ukrainian government resiliency in their operations, but it also enabled 
the you know hats off to to Google, AWS, uh, Microsoft, and others. I mean, it, it enabled them to offer the Ukrainians uh, that cyber defensive service of protecting those Ukrainian assets on those platforms. They were vigilant. They were watching those those service providers watching for anomalous behavior from Russians or sympathetic hacking community, watching for that uh, that behavior and, and shutting it down when they observed it on their platform. So, you know, if, if there's a lesson to be learned, Steve, it's it's that, you know, modernization is the key. Uh, moving to the cloud will help res- resiliency and, and the cyber uh, security, the, the cyber defenses of your, to protect your assets and your infrastructure. Yeah, and I guess to say nothing of Elon Musk's satellite system as well, which kind of took the place, I think, of that system they destroyed. Is that true? Absolutely. On the power of technology, right? I mean, his, uh, I think, 5,000 terminals that he he loaned to the Ukrainian authorities essentially provided, uh, you know, uninterrupted comms through that satellite network. I mean, again, Western tech... uh, Hats off to them for for coming to the aid of uh, the beleaguered Ukrainians. That's unique in history, I think. As soon as I said that, I thought about Henry about Henry Ford manufacturing trucks for the Nazis during World War II. Perhaps that's similar, but with the wrong side. I have never seen that happen or anything sort of like that happen. That crossover, at least that I was aware of, and I you know that usually these things are. As you well know, I mean, you're, this is your bailiwick. This is what you do for a living. And these things are they're always kept from those of us who just wander around the planet here, wondering what's happening. But these things are, are usually not shared in, in the way that we now know that all of this occurred. And that was a real crossover between private industry and, and public to help the war effort, essentially, on the on the Ukrainians' behalf. One thing that I, I definitely learned in you know 38 years of government service is that uh, we could not accomplish our missions without a strong industry partnership. That's one of the things that's gratifying about my job now with Periton is that I know what what I used to need and require as a government executive, and and I'm I'm able to help uh, help the company. Uh, tailor those solutions and and provide provide what's needed. And this is not just, you know, the State Department, of course, and other uh, civilian agencies. This is military, this is intelligence community, law enforcement, and so forth. Strong industry partnerships is uh, absolutely key to uh, mission success. Yeah, sure. We set aside uh, national security as a mission for a moment. I think it's easily fair to say that we're not doing a good job winning the war that we're in right now as as private industry i wrote a book called losing the cybersecurity war and what we can do to stop it a while ago and identified five different theaters of of engagement where we are getting trounced and identified the reasons for that and the things that i thought we needed to do to change that but how are we going to do this differently going forward i mean you know i from my point of view there is no magic bullet but i would be curious as to your view of at least a direction, either technically or ideologically or philosophically or however you want to look at it, leadership-wise. Steve, I, I think I like to, to get down to the to the basics and not make it so complicated, right? I think part of uh, 
awareness and education are a huge part, uh, huge components of cyber defense, right? I think that the messaging coming out of the federal government, specifically the you know CISA, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, right? That multi-factor authentication, right, and and zero trust. These are some very basic principles that need to be applied. And two years ago this month, right, the the executive order for cyber came out and, you know, mandated multi-factor authentication. This is multi-factor authentication. Many homeowners know that, you know, MFA on your banking account, your any financial or, or, or health or anything that's important to you online, MFA is the, is the way to go. And once enabled, you know, prevents, I mean, as you're well aware, you know, 85, 90% of potential compromises. Yet, Steve, it, it, I, I'm chagrined that so many, while it's relatively easy for, for the homeowner to implement MFA on their, their devices and tablets, right? It can be extremely difficult for large organizations to, to implement uh, MFA, even if it is mandated by an executive order, right? I mean, large amounts of legacy applications, you know, legacy hardware, software is very difficult. Sometimes uh, they don't have the resources to to move very quickly to modernize with with the new new uh, infrastructures. Perhaps moving more more steadily to the cloud. The basics, Steve, multi-factor authentication and implementing zero trust principles uh, is so key. And you know, fortunately, there, there's help, right? I mean. You know, my company, uh, Periton, is, has been helping large organizations implement zero trust years before the executive order ever came out. It is so fundamental because we no longer are watching for adversaries cross a perimeter to, to understand that we're being attacked. The perimeters are shifting. You have to nowadays trust no one at no time and at no place, which is essentially zero trust. Uh, principles. And it's just, it's so extremely important. Yeah, well, I, I agree. And we've been, we've been flogging that here for the last two years as big zero trust fans. And uh, the problem is that somehow we've managed to shoot ourselves in the foot. You know, I, if you look at the current, I was just looking today at the, some analyst observations from RSAC and they, all concluded that, you know, a lot of yada yada about zero trust at the corporate level, but the facts appear to be that only 7% of, of companies that said they wanted to do it are actually doing it. And, and then they, they, you know, they point to all of the you know, usual suspects in terms of the problems with implementing it. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's, <laughs> In my mind, there's no excuse. And you said resources at one point. I'm sort of kind of sick of hearing that excuse. That, you know, you're either secure or you're not secure. If you're not secure, you need to fix that. And whatever resources are necessary, you need to spend money to do it. There is no alternative. So I don't actually get any of that. I do understand why, if you misunderstand the objective strategy architecture, framework, however you want to think about zero trust expression, if you if you misunderstand that, then you can it can be overwhelming to you. But the guys that we formed uh, Cyber Theory Institute with, which are you know Kinderbog and Cunningham, were you know crystal clear about what what an incremental zero trust implementation is. And it's got 
nothing to do with everything that people are, you know are complaining about so in any event you know if you want to do it it's there to do we know a lot of companies that have succeeded but seven percent is a very depressing number after a couple of years of hard work at this yeah big big size steve <laughs> completely in agreement if you were to look for our biggest achilles heel here what would you say that it is in terms of you know from a why can't we get to cybersecurity in the in the uh, literal sense? Steve, one Achilles heel I would focus on that uh, you know our, our cyber defenders need help. You know the, the humans that are um, the analysts and the operators, threat hunters, the incident responders. The humans need uh, a lot more help. We've installed sensors and appliances, and we're we're bringing back data from uh, all all corners of the you know the IT uh, ecosystem you know logs from endpoint devices network appliances firewalls you got telemetry coming in from you know multi cloud environments uh, some of its real time streaming some of its massive data dumps it's an ocean of data that's coming back and and all for a, a good reason right to to increase you know operational visibility on what's going on uh, within your infrastructure, not only the security aspects of of what's going on, but also you know the health of the network, which can certainly you know point to security issues. Right, so all of this information is coming back at great velocity, in, in great volumes, and in like widely varying formats. Right, and I'm not talking about just the information technology networks. There's the operational technology networks. Right, the monitoring and control systems. Talk about widely varying formats, right? So all this stuff is coming in to these, you know, poor, beleaguered, and few too many cyber defenders. They can basically drown in, in all of this data. And so what we need is better data management, right? All of this stuff needs to be properly managed. And the tools, the cyber analytic tools that is used to analyze this data, to query this data, to extract from that data actual uh, information and, and intelligence about adversarial behavior, right? Those tools need to be developed to go hand in glove and match well with that data management platform, right? I mean, simply, the metaphor I like to go back to, Steve, is, you know, your, your garage. If your garage is very well laid out with with drawers and shelves and a bench and the, and the toolcase, right? And you you store things in your garage in an orderly manner, then you can later extract from that storage, right? And have the utility of whatever it is you need. But you can't just throw all this cyber data into a an ill-prepared, you know, data management structure and expect to get useful intelligence out of it. There's help in this regard, right? I mean, uh, it's one of the things that you know Paraton does. Today, we operate the largest U.S. government data management platform in existence, and we helped to architect and, and build that platform. You need the professionals that know how all the bits and pieces fit together, how the data flows, how it needs to be, you know, structured and and enriched and curated from collection and ingest all the way through analysis to ultimately data sharing, right? Because sharing is what it's all about, sharing your, your conclusions and uh, about, about what's in that data. 
Yeah, data is drowning our cyber defenders is, I think, our Achilles heel. And, you know, they're going to need help. They're going to need these tools to best be able to understand all the data that, uh, that they're, they're getting. And I tell you, Steve, there's a very real fear by many organizations that we already have in our hands, in our data stores, evidence of adversarial behavior. And we haven't seen it yet. It's lost in the noise. We, you know, it's 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 essentially, you know, o- opaque until we, you know, have the right capabilities to to fully understand it. Yeah, well, I mean, that shouldn't surprise anybody. They've been in there for a long time. <laughs> uh, you know, Solar Winds is just one example, but I mean, you know, we've we've had bad guys lurking in our networks for what seems like ever and collecting a lot of data, not for our benefit, but for their adversarial leadership benefit. And I guess that leads me to wonder, I have to ask the generative AI question too, if you you, you do have this huge data model or data store, are you, I'm sure you're using or started to use uh, generative AI to further enhance your uh, large learning model around this stuff and parse it out by threat type or threat actor type and the rest of that? Yes, Steve, we we are absolutely venturing down this path. But I want to say, you know, it's got to be done with very due diligence, right? Because, you know, the, the PT for GPT is pre-training. So that, that means anything that is contributed in terms of queries or parameters or anything that anybody around the world is putting in to these generative AI applications becomes part of it. It becomes part of the training and is therefore accessible by anyone you know else on the planet conducting similar queries. So it's a it's a really interesting time we're in with this generative AI, right? And I know for a fact that there the federal government organizations as well as industry are are looking very seriously about the corporate and organizational policies that are needed to help govern employee use of generative AI. Because you can put stuff into the system that you're pre-training parameters that divulge sensitive things about your organization that is absolutely not copacetic, right? So as much as this is a an incredible tool, it can also um, lead to uh, some uh, unfortunate ramifications for some organizations. So, but very, I mean, extremely interesting. This is absolutely, as they say, one of the most impactful contributions to technology that, you know, since the smartphone and some even say since the transistor. But uh, clearly it deserves a lot of research. Well, yeah, sure. And I think that, you know, trying to do something about it at a, Regulatory or even statutory level is seems hopeless to me at this point. You know, the genie's out of the bottle. There's nothing that we can do about it beyond optimizing or leveraging that data that is already out there for our own proprietary purposes. So yeah, there are I I'm aware of several companies today that are already offering that capability as a service. In other words, you know, I'm a I don't know, commodity trader in Chicago or something. I want, I want all of the 
you know, I want the global data model, but I want to throw on top of that all of my data. And I want that to be proprietary and closed. And yet I want to feed it every day with stuff from the outside. And, and that's the kind of service that they're offering, which gives that Chicago trader at least theoretically a significant advantage over his or her competitors. And so I would imagine the same thing's going to be true no matter what market you're looking at here. Instead of trying to control it and failing or you know being worked around because that's you know you know as far better than I do, that's how we do it. You know, why not go with the flow sort of and and take advantage of what what's out there. So that's just that. It's just my view. But these, th- you know, you, you say transistor. I'm not already. It feels like printing press to me. You know, and it's only been what four or five months, and I've never seen product release cycles <laughs> in a matter of minutes. You know. Before. Yeah, maybe it is since the printing press. You know. Yeah, maybe. I'm kidding. We have this uh, cyber ed uh, IO platform that we've built, we're rolling out, where it's a uh, part of our strategic initiative for the future. We're a lot of us are very passionate about the fact that we actually don't believe that most of us understand anything about what it is we're doing or trying to do for a living. And I don't mean that that's not a defamatory, but it's the truth. You know, when you rush to satisfy business units' needs for digital transformation, You've got to give up some knowledge about, you know, some leading edge technologies in order to get them placed in order to leverage that opportunity. And so, you know, hybrid cloud and Kubernetes and edge computing kind of you you're just gonna not you're just not gonna know what the what the vulnerabilities and pitfalls are to configuration issues around that unless you spend some time studying it. And what we've been trying to do here is build up a library of content that's very relevant, very current, on demand, that CISOs can use to upskill themselves around those topics, since we're not expecting them to, you know, carry wrenches and screwdrivers on their belt, but we are expecting them to provide leadership around these configurations and the implementation of these technologies. And unless you, I mean, we saw, you know, Capital One is a classic. I mean, the fact that Capital One which was such a simple breach from a mechanics point of view, occurred in whatever it was, 2019, was it? Something, you know, re- relatively recently. It's just mind-blowing. Should, that should never have happened. And, you know, you can say, well, you know, it's a hygiene problem. Well, it is, but it's also a knowledge problem, I think. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that we can provide the kind of training to folks that will actually prepare them to do the jobs that we expect them to do in spite of the fact that you know there's more work than i think than uh, than any normal human being can do carrying that uh, title around as CISO. oh i completely agree and that type of program is so very important i couldn't agree more that and when i said you know our humans need help and i spoke about cyber defenders Equally so, uh, IT managers. My, you know, heart goes out to these these folks because they're often understaffed, sometimes underskilled, and they're just running the, from job to job. They can barely get the green blinking light on the appliance they just installed going before they have to run to the next job. 
and they've got vendors selling them them uh, you know th- these appliances with you know sometimes the, you know, all of the the security features disabled so that they can you know uh, integrate it uh, much more quickly. All the while, you got users clamoring for additional functionality. Uh, and CISOs and CIOs under pressure to to meet those demands. So, yeah, your program, uh, as described, is is absolutely something that they need. Our own configuration mistakes, you know, where we're shooting ourselves in the foot. I see it time and time and time again. Our adversaries are gifted, heavily resourced, heavily motivated. They really don't need to be helped by us uh, shooting ourselves in the foot. So my hat's off to you. But you guys have appeared to me to put together some you know, training and online education of your own that's kind of focused on the cyber warrior skills development. Is that not correct? I mean, you you've got tabletop exercises and and simul you know attack sims and hackathons and all that sort of thing. Uh, that's absolutely right, Steve. I mean, there's great uh, uh, academic programs, you know, at the undergraduate and, and the graduate level. Uh, across the you know the country in um, the better universities and, and those are fantastic. They're they're augmenting the students are augmenting their hands-on skills with with internships with with industry like like at my company and uh, government institutions. Right, that hands-on training is extremely beneficial. When we can get these cyber warrior candidates into our our programs, we rely heavily on uh, like continuous learning. Right. We get the the folks together in uh, communities of practice for cyber, where the various skill sets come together. The the offensive cyber operators, the defensive, the information you know warfare operators, right? They they get together. They they can cross pollinate, share you know expertise, lessons learned. We bring in vendors and, and researchers with the latest innovations. The tabletop exercises that you mentioned are absolutely fantastic, Steve. I've seen them. You know, these are facilitated exercises, right? A compromise, and then you know you walk through the the incident response. I've seen it where a week was spent during for a tabletop exercise, and within two weeks there was a compromise by a, a nation state, uh, and the organization without skipping a beat, the the incident response team, everyone absolutely knew their roles. They were all practiced up. It was it was actually like phase two of the tabletop exercise, except it was for real, right? So they're very productive and and helpful. You know, we do cyber attack simulations and got this product that our Periton Labs has uh, has. It's called Cyber Van, and it's a cyber range, and you can basically simulate any any type of a of a hybrid network, whether civilian or military, wired or wireless, and you can you know conduct. The simulations and, and also help uh, prepare your folks. The hackathon uh, competitions are really neat. The one most recently was actually called Hackasat, right? Um, in the fall, sponsored by the Air Force Research Lab and and Space Force, where you know the hacking uh, goal was to to take over the ground station, right? And with that, command and control the digital twin of the satellite itself. So. All these, these these kinds of uh, activities are very helpful at the, the continuous learning that we you know we we absolutely foster. We try to take this knowledge and and, and give it back by uh, partnerships with with academia, right? I mean, we had a couple of Virginia schools like Virginia Tech, George Mason, University of Texas, San Antonio, Dakota State, right? 
great partnerships in academia where we actually have full-time employees there working with faculty and students on active cyber programs to include, Steve, classified facilities for government research and program work. So we uh, it's very active. And I mean, that's the good news of of the cyber workforce pipeline, right? It's it's very stimulated and very much uh, you know active. The the bad news is that it's just not enough with skill set gaps in the you know triple digit thousands. I mean, we're going to have to be patient, and uh, until these the workforce develops to fill some of the gaps, and then in the meantime, we're going to have to rely on on technology to to assist. Back to yeah. you know, humans need help. Yeah, yeah, humans need help, indeed. Yeah, so we should talk about that offline. If we figure out a way to partner there, we can certainly help expand your expand the presence of those capabilities. Fretboard is another product of yours that's similar to CyberVan. What is what is that purpose of Fretboard? How does that work? Oh yeah, Fretboard is a a single pane of glass where all of these data feeds that I was I mentioned earlier can be viewed. Again, trying to save the the analyst, the human operator time, trying to give time back to that that analyst. It is an ingestion uh, of the data, right, and uh, an enrichment of that data, and it's weeding out duplicate data, erroneous data. And again, focusing on the the important data that, that needs to be observed and adjudicated by an actual human. It uses artificial intelligence for that enrichment and national language processing, you know, for for that absolute critical speed that's needed. The idea with all of this, you know, data and the cyber analytics needed to understand it is is to not only identify that adversarial behavior, Steve, but it's the ability to predict it. Right to be able to predict it within the patterns in that way, get ahead of the behavior, get ahead of the adversary, and actually stop it. Because as you mentioned, Steve, too often we're we're finding out about the compromise weeks or months after the initial breach, after the lateral movement has happened, after the information has been exfiltrated or the operations disrupted. Yeah, threat board is is one of our. Uh, tools that we've developed. We use Scaled Agile for, for our app development, for uh, you know, our DevSecOps, and Threatboard is, is one that's uh, is, is available now and is, is being demonstrated to our customers. Yeah. Is your customer base largely military right now, or, or are you deep in command? When I say military, I mean federal government, you know, level one contractor too. Uh, Steve, we we have you know in our portfolio basically you know seven areas that we focus in: cyber, space, and intel, defense, health, citizen security, and and homeland security. So pretty much you name it, right? The federal civilian executive branch, uh, the .gov agencies, uh, law enforcement, intelligence community, and certainly military. So. We have a, a an immense portfolio of, of of customers, and and when I mention that cross pollination in our core cyber communities of practice, right, and that's a very gratifying part of my job is as a corporate VP for cyber, I can look across all of these customers and and all of their their mission sets, and you know something that's working for the army, right, 
you know, malware on malware analysis or some sort of a, a cyber uh, offensive tool, right? It might be very much fit the, the mission of, a, of another, you know, customer. I can help make those connections and foster the, the again, the, the pollination of more customers finding use out of the same tool. Yeah, sure. Well, we should, well, let's make sure we talk about that sometime soon here. Happy to, Steve. Anytime. Yeah, all right. Well, look, I know we're uh, quite a few minutes after our after our allotted 30 here, and but it's been fascinating to me, and I hope it's been equally fascinating to our audience. And um, so thank you, uh, Lonnie, for taking the time out of your day to share your thoughts with us and your experience here on this podcast. Lonnie Price, the VP of Cyber and Information Warfare at Paraton. Steve, it's been a big pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to be part of the conversation. You will do it again, for sure. And thank you to our audience for spending 35, 40 minutes of your time with us. Hopefully it was equally entertaining and engaging. And until next time, I'm Steve King, your host, signing off. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Insights. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook or send us an email at social at cybered.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybered.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, stay safe and secure, and we'll see you on the next episode of Cybersecurity Insights.